Welcome to the AOSpine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. In this episode, we will be hearing about the number five priority, biological basis. We will hear from spinal surgeon Mark Cotter, scientist James Fawcett, and Ellen Sarowitz, a person living with cervical myelopathy. My name is Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist, and founder of myelopathy.org. And I'm Dr. Michelle Starkey, scientist and director of myelopathy.org. This is the AO Spine Research Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters. So welcome to this special podcast series with AO Spine and Myelopathy Matters covering the top 10 research priorities that emerge from AO Spine Recode DCM, a research priority setting process. And that's a process that brought together people living and working with DCM to establish what are the top 10 unanswered questions in myelopathy. And of course, prioritization, as in any walk of life, really aims to accelerate progress by consolidating time, effort and resources into key areas. In this podcast series, we're exploring each priority with experts from around the world to understand why they matter and how they might be answered. So what's our focus for today, Ben? So our focus today is the number five priority, understanding the biological basis, or as the full research question reads, what is the pathophysiology of DCM? What are the mechanisms of neurological injury and the molecular and anatomical consequences? And these are questions I put to our first guest, Dr. Mark Cotter, surgeon scientist at the University of Cambridge and founder of myelopathy.org. And I started by asking him, why do we need to better understand the biological basis? The biological basis uh, of myelopathy or any other condition is really the the process and the biological details that um, drive or cause a, a disease. And, and it's really important to, to, to know this because without the knowledge of why a disease or a condition develops, you can't develop treatments or make any improvements. And it's also important in terms of understanding the progression of a condition. So from a medical point of view, you know, that is really the fundamental question. Myelopathy is caused by arthritic changes in the spine that somehow press on the spinal cord and they cause mechanical tension. And what we know is that most of us, over time, when we get older, will develop these arthritic changes, uh, the wear and tear changes in the neck. But only a small proportion of us, still a significant proportion, will develop myelopathy as a condition. What's interesting here is, and what's complex, is that the causes of the arthritis seem to be quite distinct from the co- what causes myelopathy. And if we knew what the causes of myelopathy are, not the trigger, which is the mechanical stress, we would have a better understanding of who is in danger of developing symptoms or um, progressing. We could make better treatment decisions in terms of, for example, when we operate or not. And of course, it will also open up the door for developing new treatments that are not based on surgery. 
So you've you've touched on some really critical gaps there, and I think you know as as your some of your previous work has shown, you know there isn't much research to date that's been conducted on a, on a sort of biological basis. Yeah, Ben, it, it, it's really. Uh, extraordinary if you think about how frequent uh, myelopathy is and also how how much impact it has on one's life. If you look back into the scientific literature that has conducted experimental studies, and we've recently done this as part of a systematic review, we only found about 50 papers that actually investigated why and how things happen on a biological basis in order to lead to uh, cervical myelopathy. This compares with maybe tens of thousands of studies in the field of of traumatic spinal cord injury. But without that knowledge, you don't understand the mechanisms, and without the mechanisms, you don't understand, as I said, who's, who's at risk. There might be genetic changes involved, and there's, you know, another piece of work uh, that we've done together that that looks at potential effects uh, and what we can tease out from the literature so far. There might be choices uh, of lifestyle that that play a role, and teasing those out would be important in order to prevent these symptoms of occurring. And, And finally, of course, if you knew how the mechanical stress translates into into injury, potentially we can think of developing treatments that that delay the injury or even uh, render surgery no longer uh, necessary. Does all of this sort of science and research, does it need to be conducted in a sort of preclinical sphere, you know, in a laboratory, or is there scope to to do, do a lot of this mechanistic understanding in clinical in human research? You're quite right. The times are changing and we can tease a lot of the mechanisms out also from clinical or experimental medicine approaches. So I do very much think that we need to go back to the basics, really basic sort of models, really cells in a, in, in a tissue culture and, and see how stretch affects them and why and which cells in the brain are, or in the spinal cord are affected by, by those stretch mechanisms and, and, and figure out how that translates into injury on a very deep biological basis. But with what's happening right now in the sort of experimental medicine imaging area, we we are developing new tools where we can actually look inside of the spinal cords of uh, individuals with myelopathy and we can actually even study responses to treatments and drugs which we test and that will also help to get maybe an even more relevant understanding of some of those mechanisms. So I think we need to cast a broad net in order to answer those mechanistic questions, all the way from basic science, very simple experiments, uh, to you know, large-scale genetic association studies uh, in the clinical context. You know, from a clinical perspective, people can feel that this sort of research is very far removed from actual practice and, and changing practice. How do you think answering this question really can benefit surgeons and, and the people living with the disease? I'll give you a very simple example. Um, so every every week in my clinic, I will see an individual who has a cord compression on the MRI scan and subtle symptoms, maybe maybe just that consist of tingling in their fingertips or a bit of balance issues. And the decisions that I have to make is whether this individual should have surgery 
right at this point in time or whether we should wait. And if we wait, um, there's a chance that, of course, you know, things um, deteriorate to such an extent that we can't fix it when we do, sur- uh, when, when we do surgery. And so having a simple test that could give us the answer of someone, whether someone is at risk of deteriorating or not, would make a massive uh, difference because then one would feel that taking the risk of surgery is justified um, if one knows that this individual is at higher risk versus someone where we could be more comfortable with sitting tight because we think there's little chance of, of developing worse symptoms that would also put put them at rest. And then the other thing that we need to tackle is that surgery itself is 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 very invasive. I mean, as a surgeon, I love doing surgeries, um, but at the same time, if I take on the position of an individual that that is suffering from myelopathic symptoms, then I think surgery is probably the last thing that I want. Uh, and so if we could have drugs that we could take uh, or even just lifestyle interventions that would be able to to use to delay the onset of symptoms or maybe even prevent the onset of symptoms, I think everyone would benefit. And likewise, after the operation, we would really see individuals improving a lot more than they do right now. So surgery is able to stop the condition and it enables some subtle improvements. In some individuals, it's more than in others. But if we could have you know, a treatment like a drug that would really make a difference in terms of repair, it would be a huge game changer. What is your recommendation for answering this research priority? From what I've said, this is, of course, the most fundamental and critical question I see in terms of dealing with the future of myelopathy. It's multifaceted. The research that has been conducted has given some hints of what may be involved. And I think those hints need to be hammered out and researched in, in much more depth. And so the only way to make an impact here is that the research community comes together, the funders come together, recognize that myelopathy is a priority and that people invest into understanding those mechanisms. So listening back, I think Mark really conveys very clearly why this question is such a priority. You know, without a better understanding of what DCM is at a biological level, our approach, whether in clinical research or in clinical care, will always lack that detail, that resolution. And that's before we even started thinking about, you know, developing new therapies. Yeah, and specifically, I think it's important to stress that compression of the cord does not always translate to injury. Um, And I find this a bit counterintuitive as an outsider um, to the medical profession. But I think it's a really important take-home message from Mark's interview. I think that's really a critical theme that's emerging. It represents a real paradigm shift in our perception of myelopathy. You know, it's too simple to think of this as just a compression injury. One in five adults has evidence of spinal cord compression on an MRI scan, but only 10% of those will go on to develop myelopathy. I think that really means that there must be many other factors at play here. Yes, and hence why it really makes the case for why it's so important that we understand and fully investigate the biological factors and processes involved, and hence why this priority is really key one to solve, I think. 
But I think one of the potential challenges for engaging in mechanistic research or or turning the community's attention to mechanistic research is that it is further away from changing clinical care. You know, there is a, a much greater gulf, that translational gap from uh, the preclinical science to the clinical science. And, you know, sometimes I wonder whether that is, you know, what people living with myelopathy really do do want right now. Yes, it's a really good question. And we thought it would be interesting to get the views from someone living with DCM. And I spoke to Ellen Serovitz, but the point about Ellen is that not only is she someone living with DCM, she also is a former medical communications consultant uh, to the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. So in a way, she sort of has the experience from both sides of this sort of argument or, or, you know, this discussion point. So I started by asking her whether people living with DCM are interested in preclinical research. I think that anyone with a chronic condition potentially has an interest in what it actually means and what causes it. The science is frankly very, very complex. We know there's a mechanical cause and the mechanical cause is a structure within the spine pressing on the spinal cord. That might be enough But there's a whole lot going on underneath that has to do with different kinds of damage to the spinal cord. I think another key is, you know, that there is no direct correlation between what you see on imaging, whether it's x-ray or MRI, and the symptoms that you're experiencing. So this is another area where it's really important to understand the kinds of damage that's going on and the continuing process of damage, cell death, even, you know, inflammation that's causing the symptoms, making the symptoms worse, that may not make sense, you know, if you just look at a picture. And so another thing is that maybe having this understanding of the science makes us feel hopeful that maybe people who are doing the basic research can come up with something like, you know, what to look at instead. So surrogate markers, maybe. There are many, many different complex mechanisms at work and they're dynamic. It's not just a static condition. You know, we talk about the pathophysiology of the disease, but also important is understanding what's happening during decompression because it's the same thing. They're very dynamic. There are a lot of changes. So I think we want to understand why it doesn't cure us or why it doesn't improve things or why did it improve things? Then I deteriorate again. Maybe these will just give us some reason, some answer for the moment. Quite frankly, all somebody can do is answer with a shrug of the shoulders and say, at the moment, we don't know. I wonder too, I mean, obviously you have a bit more of a background in in the medical field and I'm wondering whether, you know, preclinical research in particular in this field is accessible to people who don't and whether that's also a factor that they're not particularly interested in it because they're complex mechanisms and um, processes that are going on and and in fact it would be down to us and, and the medical profession to sort of explain those a little bit better in a way that that you know, means something to someone who who's experiencing it. 
Absolutely. And because this is part of how I've spent my whole working life, actually being able to communicate very complex science and concepts to people who don't talk this language and who may find it frightening and threatening. And quite frankly, I mean, reading it has stretched me quite a lot. There's quite an art to it. Also, providing information in a stepwise manner so that you think, what do people have to know? And then when they want to dig under the surface, how do you then start providing more information to enrich their knowledge without being threatening, but satisfying their interest and their need? And then the other people, you know, you also have to think about, you know, all of the other people who are part of their community who need to hear a little bit so that they are more understanding of what somebody with DCM is actually going through. No, it's very important that uh, that language is correct and that it's communicated clearly. So what would be your recommendations for addressing priority five? One of the things that really shocked me when I looked through the list of studies looking at all of these changes following chronic spinal cord compression I mean, the list of findings was very interesting for me. But then looking at the strength of evidence, it was shocking because not only are there very few studies, but the quality of the evidence is actually really poor. I mean, not one is classified as as even adequate. They're either moderate or poor. So I think what we as the DCM community need to say is, regardless of what our understanding is of the science, that there needs to be much more commitment to good quality research and good quality science, because that's the only way you're really going to make progress. Generating good evidence, building up a scientific community, increasing the crosstalk and the conversation, then getting the people who do research to communicate at a better level with people with the condition. You know, so what you're starting to do is you're starting to build a really powerful advocacy community based on the scientific community. It's actually a great way of raising awareness because you get the literature, you have people talking about it at scientific meetings, you have people talking to clinicians, you, you know, it begins to matter. I think that's absolutely key. I've had a second operation. I've had a a good result. It's not perfect, but, you know, I'm stable at the moment. It it was a little bit unsettling, but as I thought, the condition can continue to progress and deteriorate, which is another reason why you want more preclinical research to understand what is the long-term course anyway. I mean, you know, it's something I I have to learn to live with. But it's hard. You've had your surgery. You go home. You know, the surgeon says, you've done well. So the surgeon also says, and I've done well. And then you go home and you live with the pain and you live with the disability and you live with a a state of uncertainty. And you kind of think, well, is that it? So, you know, I know there's another question about uh, rehabilitation and what that might look like. But for me, knowing that there is an active scientific community that is now really passionate about 
this condition and increasing our knowledge and building the body of knowledge and and that I can have a connection with them and and work with them in, in some capacity is actually really good for me because it, you know, I'm stuck with the condition. I like to think that something positive might come out of it. Is there anything that can be done to block some of these damaging pathways? Is there anything that can be done to enhance healing or to enhance the pathways that improve function? So understand what goes on with decompression and then think, is there any way that we can ameliorate or improve on you know, what we've done? Or can we prevent some of the secondary damage that actually occurs when you restore blood flow, for example? That may be the more immediate area where preclinical research holds out possibly more hope, more promise. If there were more a better understanding of the nature of slow motion or evolving spinal cord damage, every person along the potential intervention pathway actually knew something about it. They don't need to know all of it, but there's some basics they could know. It would really help change the attitude to the condition. I mean, Ben came up with a couple of really good examples, you know, the the changing management of both um, cerebrovascular events and and myocardial infarction. But another one is actually uh, atrial fibrillation, which was just seen as, you know, elderly people having a bit of a funny heartbeat. But study began to show that it was associated with stroke and greater severity of stroke and drop attacks and the risk of fractures and loss of independence and, you know, then myocardial remodeling. And once you started to pull all of these features together and make a really compelling story, then, of course, you had to communicate that story and find everybody who was a stakeholder along the way and tell them that story and, you know, tell them something about it that was going to hit them between the eyes and ideally in the pocket as well. I have to say there was a huge amount of industry money that was behind that, just as there was a huge amount of industry money behind the other conditions. And this is one of the challenges that we face is building that compelling narrative for every stakeholder with different kinds of resources. And again, Recall DCM is fantastic because we are building such a big multi-stakeholder, multidisciplinary global community. I think we can gain traction and gain a share of voice. It's going to be harder, but I think it is something that we can do. So I had posed a question of whether you know people living with with myelopathy can really get behind investing in in mechanistic research, and I think what comes across from Ellen's interview is that yes, they can. It, it is a crucial part of of getting getting the answers that they need. I really liked Ellen's statement about the fact that she's really heartened to know that there's a community of researchers interested in DCM, because as she says, you know, she's got DCM, she has to live with that. And she's absolutely clear this extends across the spectrum of science, across across the disciplines. But on the preclinical research point, she also echoes the point made by Mark Cotter that there is there is really so little preclinical research. 
I agree with this completely. Um, my research experience is in traumatic spinal cord injury. And in that field, there's a well-established preclinical science community. And I have to admit that before I started working with the charity, I'd not heard of DCM. Uh, so that's really echoing that point that there's just very little research in that sort of field. But I think it's a really great opportunity for synergy between the two. And of course, that is something you discussed with our next guest, Michelle, um, Professor James Fawcett, who's Emeritus Professor of Experimental Neurology at the University of Cambridge. Yes, and James has been at the forefront of preclinical research for traumatic spinal cord injuries, building an understanding of the mechanistic processes involved. And I started by asking him what he thinks is the best approach to answering the biological questions that are most pertinent to DCM. Does he think that they can be investigated clinically, or are we better relying on preclinical models? Well, of course, we need both. Uh, there are animal models of DCM which do roughly represent the condition, but of course, they're not exact models of, of DCM. None of them have arthritis that slowly compresses the spinal cord. But there are models in rats and mice particularly that do compress the spinal cord slowly over a period of time, and there are different ways of doing this. Those animals end up with damage to the spinal cord that looks fairly similar to what you would see in human patients and the pathology and the sort of molecular biology is fairly exactly the same on the other hand you know uh, animals are not humans the way in which their nervous system works is a bit different the way in which they respond to treatments the way in which they respond to trauma is somewhat different and so things that you develop in animals won't be exactly the same. There's also the issue of size, of course, that rats and mice are very much smaller, and therefore there will be differences in terms of, of, of size, of translatability. There's also differences in inflammation and in the immune system. So you can't assume that every treatment that works in one of the animal models will work exactly the same in human patients. So this is one of the needs for doing clinical trials, frankly, that you can get some very good candidates from animal research that you think will be efficacious. But until you actually start applying them to human patients, you're not quite sure how the human patients are going to respond and to the extent that the, to which that will be different between the animal models and the patients. And what do you feel are the most important insights we can gain from investigating DCM preclinically or using preclinical models? So when the spinal cord starts to get compressed, because the spinal canal is getting thinner with old age and whatever, you start to see restriction of blood flow, you start to see inflammation, uh, you start to see scarring, you start to see damage to the tissue developing inside the compressed cord. You start losing the myelin, for instance, that insulates the nerve fibers. So all of these are processes that go on together. The extent to which you can mitigate those by treatments, I think is something that isn't quite clear yet. But certainly there are treatments that could enhance blood flow. There are a lot of treatments that could control inflammation. And there are treatments coming along that affect myelination. So there are possibilities for treatment before surgery. After surgery, you're obviously in a new situation in that you're wanting the spinal cord to recover from the damage it suffered before surgery. And there you're looking for treatments that can recover neurological function. So the two most accessible, probably, the two that will come into clinical trials first, will first of all be treatments to improve myelin repair. So this is the 
myelin that insulates nerve fibers that, that get stripped away by the spinal cord compression, there are treatments coming along that will help for myelin repair. The second set of treatments which we've been involved with are treatments to improve plasticity. Now, plasticity is the ability of the nervous system to rewire itself around an area of damage, and it allows considerable recovery of function. But levels of plasticity in the adult nervous system are very low, and we've developed treatments that take the plasticity back to the level that you see it in childhood. So this allows a considerable degree of functional recovery, as long as you learn how to use the new function, of course, through rehabilitation. And those treatments are now ready or nearly ready for clinical trials. So there is progress that's come out of the preclinical efforts, and we certainly need to, to improve our ability to get these into clinical trials. And when you're talking about clinical trials here, are you referring to traumatic spinal cord injury, or do you think um, these could also be applied in DCM? The biology of recovery after traumatic spinal cord injury and after DCM is actually very similar. In both cases, you've got lesions to the spinal cord, damage to the spinal cord, and you're looking to see recovery of function afterwards. So treatments that work for recovery in spinal cord injury will probably work for recovery after DCM surgery. The two should be going hand in hand. Most people, when they think of spinal cord, think of spinal cord injury, acute spinal cord injury, uh, leading to paralysis. But I think we definitely need to improve the consciousness of the general public and the researchers for the need for clinical trials in DCM. So an advantage of doing clinical trials in DCM is it's actually a relatively common condition. Spinal cord injury, thankfully, is not common, and it's quite hard to recruit a patient base. In DCM, there are a lot of people suffering from the condition and quite a lot of, of patients getting surgery. So what would be your recommendations for answering this priority, so about developing an understanding of the biological basis of DCM? I think the first problem you face actually is there's very low public perception of DCM as a disease. Uh, if you ask the general public what is DCM or cervical myelopathy, most people won't know. And that's why organizations like myelopathy.org are so important to increase public consciousness and consciousness among the researchers. So at present, the number of researchers doing preclinical research into myelopathy is actually very small, and most preclinical researchers are pretty unaware of the disease. This means also that the people who fund research are not very aware of the disease. You know, the general funders, other than specific organizations like myelopathy.org, things like the Medical Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, there's very little consciousness of myelopathy within those organizations. You will see very few scientific papers published on DCM. You'll see a lot of scientific papers published on stroke, on traumatic brain injury, on spinal cord injury. And the mechanisms of recovery are fairly similar in many of these diseases. So I think the first thing we need to do really is to increase the consciousness of DCM in the scientific community so that people realize that the research they're doing is actually relevant to DCM. This will need us to do some consciousness raising, but also to propagate the animal models of DCM, because at the moment people aren't aware that chronic cord compression uh, caused by DCM is something that you can model in animal models in the laboratory. So I think the first uh, step I'd take is raising consciousness in the scientific community. And that means getting people to write reviews, getting meetings, uh, just general consciousness raising.
partly the name is a bit of an issue. Cervical myelopathy, people don't know what it is. If you call it chronic cord compression or chronic spinal cord injury through compression, I think people would understand better what it is. So there may be a terminology issue when you're addressing the, the scientists as well. When you write your documents, you know, for, for myelopathy, you need to put this in because I think people find it hard to connect with, with cervical myelopathy as a concept. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more from the research side about research that's going on and the difficulties there. In terms of developing treatments, the two bits of biology, I think, that are pretty much ready for um, developing new treatments are remyelination and plasticity. And of those, I think plasticity is probably the easiest because there are treatments coming along already that are relatively effective. We're working on nerve fiber regeneration treatments, plasticity treatments, myelination treatments, but these are still quite difficult. I think we need more preclinical work on combining plasticity treatments with rehabilitation with animal models of DCM to find out how best to do this and to prioritize perhaps the potential treatments we already have coming through the laboratory so that we can focus on one good potential treatment that should be carried forward into clinical trials for DCM and then really put our weight behind that. In terms of remyelination, again, there are good treatments coming along. They are nearly ready for clinical trials, some of them. There are some anti-inflammatory treatments that are already in the clinic. And again, I think we need to start focusing on looking carefully at the animal models and working out what's the best combination of treatments and what we should all push for uh, in terms of getting through to a clinical trial. There are other longer-term treatments coming along, but those are more at the level of basic research at the moment. And in order to get those moved ahead, we really need to start working on the people who fund research and on making this, the um, preclinical researchers excited in doing them in order to start seeing some movement. So I think that James coming from the research field really brought a different perspective to this topic. Were there parts of that interview that you found particularly interesting, Ben? Well, there are a number really. And I think one of the interesting things is that although James comes from a different sort of perspective, if you like, he was arriving at the same sort of views that, that Mark also held, that, that getting to the bottom of this question will in part need a preclinical approach. But also it was interesting that James always has his eye on that eventual endpoint, that, that new treatment. So whatever's happening preclinically is there to inform the development of new treatments. And I think that's in, important to recognise from a sort of clinical point that this is all this is all relevant. But something else that he mentions that I thought, again, again mirrors what Mark said, is that importance of raising awareness. He felt that, that, that answering this question, a biological question, actually starts by raising awareness. And he touches on something I hadn't really thought about, which was actually the importance of raising awareness in the scientific community, the preclinical community. This is an enormous research environment that could be just pivoted slightly to target a question like this and translate lots of that experience, expertise from other areas um, for the benefit of myelopathy. Yes, it's really true. And um, we've spoken about it before, about raising awareness and how we might do this. But I agree with James that doing this within the scientific community will have a real impact. And I think it's something that as a charity, we could really be thinking about now. And another part of the discussion that I wanted to discuss with you was James's comments about the name. I know you've been working on this with our supporters. So what was the outcome of that, Ben? 
again, James really cut to the heart of it. You know, if you haven't got a name that people recognize and buy into, how can you raise awareness? And this is absolutely one of the additional objectives of AO Spine Recode DCM to try and identify the name that we should call this disease and, and that should be used the world over. And I think that technical term will emerge and that will be useful in terms of a sort of classification point of view, but perhaps it won't be enough to resonate with the, the general public in, in quite the same way that James was alluding to there. And I think something that we're sort of building on from that on now is the idea that probably we need to have that technical term and we need to match it with some form of lay description, which people can really buy into, you know, be it something like slow motion spinal cord injury. And of course, that's key to many diseases. You know, we think of uh, a myocardial infarction, better known as a heart attack. We think about a cerebrovascular event, better known as a stroke. So there are those partnerships which can really work together to raise awareness, both sort of in a technical, but also in a non-technical way. So thank you very much to Mark Cotter, Ellen Serovitz, and James Fawcett for joining us. The podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. There's lots of information to be found at aospine.org forward slash recode. But thank you for listening. We'll be back here next week with the next item in our series, number six in our top 10 myelopathy research priorities from AO Spine, and that is perioperative rehabilitation. Don't miss it. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, why don't you subscribe via your favourite podcast app? Until then, goodbye. Thank you.